Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be here, and I really do mean that. I had a, a couple of conversations on the way in, and I get the impression that you're more nervous about being up here than I am. And uh, I, I really don't mind. In fact, uh, if you look at my normal Saturdays, they're, they're filled with four things, and this is sort of the, the order of the delight that I have in these things. The first is studying and reading. I, I do, try to do as much of that as I can. That's what I like to do the most. Then I'll do some cooking if there's time, and then there's always the uh, things that I must do, like the... Um, uh, weekly chores, and then there's the ever-expanding honey-do list that I'm working on as well. And as soon as I get the call to preach, then I put everything off and I do what I want to do, that is study and uh, read all day. And then to crown it off, I get to get up here and tell you what I studied and read all day in the form of a sermon. So I appreciate your concern and your prayers, but really it's not a, not a burden for me to be up here. I, I, I truly, truly do delight. And knowing that it benefited our brother Justin makes it even more delightful for me to do this. So um, we're going to look today at Psalm 73, and this is a very, uh, it really is one of my favorite psalms. In all the years I've been preaching, I, I, I can't believe I've never actually preached this psalm. I thought I may have, and I went back and looked at my notes, uh, through, even through sermon audio for some stuff, and there, there's large sections of this psalm that I'd memorize, and there's some very memorable parts of this psalm that most of us have probably heard and maybe even memorized, but it's ne- I've never preached on it, and it is probably one of the most beautiful psalms uh, there are when, when you look at it and see what, what the psalmist is dealing with and looking at his, at his struggles. And what I'll do is I will read it. It's kind of long. It's uh, 28 verses, so uh, bear with me as I read it, and then uh, we'll give a little introduction, have some prayer, and then see what the Lord has to say to us uh, in this psalm. So Psalm 73, this is a, it says book three, if you have your Bibles, and notice book three, that, that's the, the Psalms are divided up into three different books. This is the, the third book. Uh, you'll notice that it's a Psalm of Asaph. This is not a Psalm of David. This collection of Psalms are by uh, some people called Asaph, and, and there's, there's debate about who this is. Some people think it's a man, and even those who believe it's a man, they're not sure which Asaph it is. There's a couple of them in the scriptures, and some thinks it's a, it's a group of men, like a Asaphites or something like that. It's a, a collection or a group or clan of men who are given the responsibility uh, of writing uh, psalms for the scriptures. And he says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked." For there are no pains in their death, their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness, the imagination of their heart runs riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth." Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know, and is there knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth." Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. As if I said I will speak thus, behold, I have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered, the underst- when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came to the sanctuary of God, then I perceived, perceived their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You Cast them down to destruction. How, can, how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, arouse when you will despise their form. O Lord, when you arouse, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let us pray. Our Father, we are thankful for this psalm, a somewhat lengthy psalm, but a, a meaningful psalm, what I hope will be an encouraging psalm as we uh, examine it and see the, the wrestling that the psalmist goes through and the struggles that he has, the doubt, the fears, Father, uh, the even unfaithfulness at times, but how he comes back, he draws himself close to you and you draw close to him and you give him hope, Father, hope of glory. You are his portion, all that he values, all that he, he loves and desires, he finds in in you, Father. Therefore, he can take refuge in you. He can tell of all your wondrous works. And we pray that you would help us today as well uh, to know, to see your wondrous works that you do to us and for us through the person and work of Christ. We thank you for this in his name. Amen. Now, normally when looking at Psalms, they're rather difficult to preach because there's not really a a good coherent outline in most of them. They don't follow normal grammar rules. There, there's no markers, therefore, thus, uh, in them to tell us where thought shifts or changes. But this psalm, it's different. There's a, a definite outline here that we can see, and it's given by the word surely. We find this word three times in the psalm. It's once in verse uh, chapter 1, we find it again in verse 13, and again in verse 18. And this sort of marks out an outline of this psalm, and we find basically three parts to it that we're going to use as a very simple outline. First of all, verses 1 through 12, uh, the psalmist states a problem that he has. There, there's an issue, a difficulty that he is experiencing, something that he observes that is causing him grief. Then in verse 13 through 17, this again starts with this word surely. I think if you have a, an ESV, it's the word truly, but most of the, the King James-like versions, it's, it's surely. Uh, in this passage, we see the struggle with this problem. He's wrestling with something, with an issue. And then verses 18 through 28, again, verse 18 starts with the word surely, and what we see there is the solution to this struggle. So a very simple outline, a PSS, problem, struggle, and a solution. Now, the problem, what is the problem that the psalmist is experiencing here? He begins by saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, if you're familiar with the Psalms, after reading this, what do you normally expect a psalmist to do when he, when he speaks of the goodness of God? What normally follows? A description of that goodness. They'll say, the Lord is good, and then give this lengthy description of all the works that God has done for his people. An example of this is Psalm 107, where he says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness. Again, here is why he is good. This is an example of his goodness. His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary. Then he goes on and, and talks about all the things that the Lord has done done for Israel out of his goodness by uh, recounting them. He talks about how he brought them out of Egypt, how he brought them through the wilderness and protected them and, and finally brought them and settled them in the land in the, the land of Israel. So many of the Psalms do this. They declare the goodness of God and then catalog all the things that God has done to show his goodness to Israel. But the psalmist doesn't do that here. He declares the goodness of God and then he stops he immediately changes the subject. And instead, what he does, he removes himself, in a sense, from this group of people who God is good to. That is the upright in heart. God is good to the upright in heart. Verse 2 then starts with, but as for me, in other words, I'm not one of these people that God is good to. So there's a contrast here between those who God is good to and the psalmist himself. But as for me, he says, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps almost slipped. Now what the psalmist here is describing is, is he had a lack of faith. There was a doubt in his heart. Uh, he was not considered part of the upright, those who are under God's blessing, because there was a, a struggle. He had a difficulty in, in faith, in his faith. And um, 
He knows that the Lord is good, but instead of experiencing that goodness, he is envious. He is angry, jealous, doubtful about something. He is full of spite and resentment about something. And until that is dealt with, he cannot experience God's goodness or even describe it like he does in many other Psalms. So the question is, how does, he, how does the psalmist get from the, this sense of doubt, this sense of God is not good to me, to the idea that God is good? Well, that, that's the, basically the story of this psalm, how he goes from not seeing God's goodness, not experiencing it, to God now being good to him, God showing him his goodness. That's basically the whole flow of this psalm, going from doubting God's goodness to seeing and explaining, talking about God's goodness. He goes from being tormented by resentment, animosity, cynicism, and bitterness to being content with God being near. So let's dig in and find this out. Okay, going back to the original, the problem, the struggle, and the solution, he begins with the pro- problem. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps almost slipped. The writer's not speaking of some uh, turning from God in apostasy. He's not saying that he has joined the ranks of the wicked and turned away completely from God. He did not lose his faith, nor did he embrace the life of the wicked. And instead, he doubted God's goodness to him. There was an impediment to his face, faith, something that was causing him to doubt the goodness of God. And it, it is the faith that is the ground for us receiving and believing in the promises of God. Uh, We are justified by faith, so we have peace with God. Uh, Faith is not something that came in the past. It's something that we possess now that is living and vibrant in our lives that gives us confidence, that gives us hope. And when that faith, when it slips, when it diminishes, then we lose that hope. We lose that confidence. And that is what the psalmist here is experiencing. Uh, Paul tells the Corinthians uh, to be strong, be on on the alert, uh, stand firm in the faith act like men, be strong. This faith is something that must be active in our lives. It must be real and living if we are to have the hope that God promises us. And again, as soon as it wavers, as soon as it weakens, we begin to lose hope. And that's the situation the psalmist is in. He's slipping because he's beginning to doubt God. He doesn't see the goodness of God in his life. The question is, what is causing this? What is making David, or not David, Asaph slip or fall and slip in his faith? Well, uh, we see that in the next verse. And what's interesting here is that I love the way he just blurts this out. Uh, We often, when we have problems like this, we uh, use like a a general euphemistic language. Well, I had these struggles I was dealing with, or I was wrestling with some issues and I doubted God, or I had some setbacks, my faith was challenged. We always have ways to sort of hide our our sins and use euphemisms to describe them. But Asaph just just blurts it out. I was envious of the arrogant and I saw when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So there's an envy here that he has. He looks at the wicked, he sees the prosperity, he sees their blessings, uh, and he becomes envious. He becomes angry and frustrated at that blessing. Now the word prosperity here is a word we're all familiar with. It's the word shalom. And uh, apologies to the prosperity gospel adherents, uh, it does not mean earthly riches. It does not mean he was a rich man in wealth. Uh, It basically has the idea of of well-being, somebody who is satisfied with life, who has a blessing in life. The general idea of being well-being, there's a general health and prosperity and peace of mind that these people had and has when David looks, or Asaph looks at them, he becomes envious, envious and angry. He says this, for there's no pain in their death and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men or are they plagued like mankind? So here are these wicked people uh, just basically prospering. They seem to not have a care in this life and that makes David angry. It makes him envious. Now, we don't need to get far in identifying who these people are. We don't need to necessarily name names. But we do understand, we do see in our world today, that, that there are pe- certain evil people uh, who, due to their wealth, uh, their political or their social connections and status, appear to be free from all the normal cares of this life. 
And they weigh down the, the poor, they're oppressive, uh, they take from the helpless and defenseless, uh, even while claiming all the while to be virtuous. Uh, from their appearance, they, they seem to be rather well off and free from any care or any concern. But Asaph describes these people as people who are arrogant and violent. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Their garments of violence covers them. Now, you, you children, let's say you, you young ladies here, you have a, let's say your father goes out and buys your mother a, a, a real pretty necklace, a gold, shiny necklace. And how's your mother going to wear that necklace? She's going to take it and tuck it down in her shirt, her blouse, when she goes to church the next day? And she's going to wear it here for everybody to see. Or if you, uh, some of you young, young ladies like to wear, I guess they call them princess dresses. When, when you wear one of those, do you, do you cover it up with a coat? No, you, you show it. You want people to see it because you think it's beautiful. You want to display these things. Just like your mother wants to display the beautiful necklace your father bought her. Just like you want to show the pretty dress you have. When we talk about things as necklaces or garments, they're things that are publicly displayed. And what Asaph is saying here, that this, this arrogance... This corruption that these people have, it's displayed for everybody to see. There's no shame. Uh, there's no sorrow. There, there's no sadness. There's no grief that they are this way. They want everybody to see it and have no qualms, no concerns about what people think about them or what people believe about them. They're arrogant, and it's there for everybody to see. I remember Joseph in his coat of many colors. What did he do with it? He wore it. It was a sign of his father's love for him. So he wore it everywhere. Uh, there's an example, I think, what, what Belshazzar, uh, Daniel does something. I can't remember what it was. But uh, Belshazzar, the king, gives him a, a purple robe and a, a big gold necklace to wear as a sign of his authority and power in uh, Babylon. And those are things that are shown in public. They're, they're displayed. Well, their arrogance and their pride are things that are open for display for all people to see that their shame knows no bounds. Now, verse 7 is interesting. It's kind of weird language. It says, their eyes bulge from fatness. The imagination of their heart runs right. The bulging eyes here refer to an outward manifestation of their hedonistic, gluttonous, and voracious lifestyle. Their overindulgence. They're fat. Their eyes bulge. Uh, in, in largeness. The idea of the imagination of their heart uh, denotes evil schemes that their mind dreams up. These schemes overflow, he says, like rivers of water. Uh, there's no self-imposed limits on their carnal desires nor their plans to get what they want. And we know people like this, that there's this, this insatiable appetite that they have for evil. And they'll plan all day on ways to get that evil. There's no end to their scheming as to how they can satisfy that evil. Evil. This is the type of person David or Asaph is talking about here. They're, they're fat with excess, with overindulgence, and that they spend their days scheming on how they can get more. The next verse focuses on the things that they say in verse 8. They scoff or, or mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high that their cruelty and their harshness, uh, that there's a they're scoffing, it oppresses, it torments, it afflicts those people who it is aimed at. A Jew describes these people in this way. He says, these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. So there's this arrogance, and with this arrogance, there's a, a cruelty, an evil that oppresses, that speaks from on high, that is an arrogance that comes from their mouth. This is expanded in verse 9. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. I like the ESV has there, their tongue strut through the earth. There's, an, again, a description of arrogance here, of just stretching around the earth, of displaying their arrogance, speaking against the heaven. Now, I think this is a little bit hyperbolic, but David here, or Asaph, is saying here that their arrogance knows no bounds. It goes all the way to the heavens, and they strut throughout all of the earth. Now, these pro people probably never traveled more than 10 or 15 miles away from their hometown, but in describing it, David uses a hyperbole to show that it knows it's endless. It knows absolutely no bounds. It goes up to the heavens, and it goes throughout all of the earth. 
Now, verse 10 describes how people respond to them. What is the response of normal people to this, this arrogance, this wickedness? It says, therefore, his people return to this place, and the waters of abundance are drunk by them. Another difficult passage, when you look at the commentaries, nobody really knows exactly what it's saying here, but the idea of what it means is that there's a, people see this, this arrogance and their ruthlessness, and you think that they would be repulsed by it. But just the opposite happens. People are attracted to this. As a man thirsting after water, uh, they are drawn to this type of lifestyle, this carefree, uh, this lifestyle is attractive to the masses, and even at times the upright in heart are tempted to go back to, to this lifestyle, as the psalmist we're going to see is tempted as well. So there's this drawing uh, that these people have over the masses. They want to be like that. They want this, this free, carefree lifestyle, free of any concerns, able to do, to get anything that they want, have all of their, their lusts and desires satisfied, a carefree lifestyle. It's attractive to the lost and at times even to the godly. Now, for the first time here, this boasters speak. Asaph puts words in their mouth and they say this, how does God know and is their knowledge with the Most High? This is where their arrogance and presumption reach its peak. They look at their lifestyle. They look at all the apparent blessings that they have. They know that they're evil. They know that they should be punished for these things. They know that, that oppressors should be oppressed. They know that evil uh, should be judged. But they go about saying, look, there's no judgment. Nothing's happening to me. Everything is fine. Therefore, either God doesn't know, God approves, or God just simply doesn't care. So they see their lifestyle, they see the blessings that they seem to receive, and come to the conclusion, well, uh, either God approves of it, either he doesn't know it, doesn't see it, or he simply doesn't care. Uh, again, a, an utter, complete arrogance. A good example of this is, uh, we've all heard of Jim Jones, right? The, the Guiana, the guy who they went down there and uh, like 900 people committed suicide. It was a, we get the, the idea of drinking Kool-Aid. They drank the Kool-Aid from that. Uh, these people were a cult. They went down there with him and uh, things were just falling apart. And so he basically had everybody drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid and over 900 people died. And what most people don't know is what Jim Jones was in the States before he went down there in the early uh, 70s. And he was a progressive socialist in San Francisco. Uh, he was a darling of the progressives of that city. Uh, Dianne Feinstein, uh, Jerry Brown, uh, and his father, they were both governors of California. Uh, Willie Brown, the uh, state assembly speaker and mayor of um, San Francisco as well. They all, they all flocked to this man's church and considered him to be a friend in the early days, late 60s, early 70s. Um, and there arose in his church, he was basically a sodomite, this man was, and there arose in his church uh, verifiable accusations that there was sexual abuse, rape, and sodomy occurring in this church. And it was a very famous church. Uh, in fact, Jones moved to Guyana basically to get away from those accusations, to escape those charges and took the church with him where he'd be free uh, from any kind of scrutiny by the government or the state. And uh, w one day when these accusations were at their peak, uh, Jones gets in his pulpit. And he holds up a Bible, and it's a very theatric. He's a very uh, uh, charismatic preacher. And he basically says, if anything is going wrong here, if I'm doing anything wrong, then let God strike me dead. And the place just grew dead quiet. Nothing happened. And people really expected God to send lightning to strike this guy if he was guilty. And nothing happened. So what did Jones conclude? What did the people conclude? Well, God didn't judge me. He had his chance. Everything must be okay. And then he went continuing in his sodomy and everything else that he did. That's the arrogance that these people have. God is not judging me. God is not punishing me in any way. Therefore, hey, it must be okay. Either he doesn't know or he approves. And that's their arrogance, the height of their arrogance. Again, this is the problem that he's described. The wicked are always at ease. They're increasing in their wealth or pomp as this world can also, I'm, let me read that again here. Uh, it's what he's described here. The wicked are at ease, they're always at ease and are increasing in their wealth or pomp. And uh, this is basically what he sees. Now, there's also an irony here as well where 
they should be being judged. They should be being punished for this. If God is real and true, David or Asaph knows that they should be judged. They should not be happy like this. But yet they actually are. So David's, or I keep calling him David, Asaph, um, sees an irony here that there should be judgment, but there's not. And now he goes into the struggle, the struggle that he has with this vision of the ungodly, of the wicked, and the prosperity that they seem to be under, the arrogance that they display that God seems to be silent about and not reacting to. Uh, In verse 13, again, we see surely, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. What David is saying here is, look, I've spent so much energy, so much time. I've given up so much in order to be godly, to cleanse my heart. And look what happens to me. I'm being oppressed. I'm being crushed. I'm being, it seems, judged and chastised. Well, they go living scot-free living without any fear of judgment or repercussions for their action. And so there's, there's this sense of it's all for nothing. It, it, it does no good. There's no benefit. Um, a job I had, first time I experienced this was at a job I had right out of college. I'd been a believer for four or five years. And I experienced a little bit of it, but nothing like until this time. And I had a job, nice job, not too far away. And uh, I was an engineer. And this new guy came, and these people always went out and drank and got drunk at parties and stuff and after work parties. And I just never did that. I was a Christian. I didn't do that kind of stuff. I'd I'd gotten out of that when I became a Christian, and I certainly wasn't going to go back into it with a new job. And um, this new guy came and just jumped right into this party mentality and started going out with the boss, getting drunk with him, became drinking buddies with with all these guys, uh, not only my boss, but my boss's boss. And this guy immediately, after a few months, started climbing up the ladder. And he was a, very, a slacker, he was a braggart, he wasn't the man you wanted working for you or with you, but because he went out drinking with the guys, was able to go up in advancement uh, beyond me. And then um, there was a time where uh, something happened, uh, one of these guys, these drinking guys, they lost a bunch of data, accounting data, which when you work for the uh, defense industry is a big deal. And people could have gone to jail for this. And these guys got together, and they blamed me for that. And I know that they did, and I heard them through uh, secondary sources heard that they were talking about me and planning this. And, uh, and it was distressful, because here I'd been withholding myself from these activities for what I thought was good, and now it seems I'm being punished for them. And it would have been easy to go out maybe once a month or twice a month and get drunk with these guys. That would have fixed the whole problem. But... I didn't, and so I felt in a sense, well, w- what's the use? Why bother? If I go through all this effort, you know, sit alone at home, uh, not going out and, and having friends, I could hang out with these people at work, I know them better at work, be more friendly with them, but uh, instead I'm kind of just isolated, getting blamed for all this stuff. And I, I wondered, you know, is, is it really worth it? And that's sort of what, what Asaph is going through here. Look, I, I've been godly. I've made the sacrifices. I've done everything required of me, Lord. And, and look where I'm at right now. I'm sitting here being chastised. I'm being disciplined. And they're off getting fat and enjoying life and be having a life free of any concerns. Again, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastised every morning. So it's not just that Asaph is standing off watching the wicked prosper. He himself is being stricken and chastised all day long every single morning. Yet he knew this conclusion was wrong. He could not accept the fact, even though it was right before his eyes. Asaph knew that his conclusion was not correct, that something different was what is right. The idea of guarding your heart, uh, that keeping yourself pure was useless and meaningless, was a betrayal of all that he knew, that all that he believed. So much so that speaking about this would have been a betrayal to the generation of your children. And what's happening here is he's thinking about this, he's meditating upon it, and he asserts the idea that it would be treachery to believe this, to believe that God blesses the unrighteous and the wicked and punishes the godly, that it's useless to be godly, it's meaningless. That, that to him was not an acceptable thing, but yet he didn't see that in his heart and his mind. And so he thinks about, well, what do I do with this? What if I go and I tell the people of God this, that this is what I believe? What would that do to them? 
What would that make them think if I were to say it's useless to be godly? Other people who have struggled like I have to be godly and maybe aren't seeing it in the dark light that I am, what would this do to their faith? What would it do to them? That's what he speaks of next. In verse 15, for if I had said I will speak thus, in other words, speak what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So David is saying, or Asaph is saying here, if I went and I told this to people, what would it do to them? Well, I would be betraying the people of God. The idea of generation of your children here is a covenant term. People who belong to the covenant are causing them to stumble. And this is the idea, there's an important idea here of perseverance. And that is, we don't believe here that you're once saved, always saved. We believe in, in perseverance, that when God saves one of his elect, when they are saved, God ensures that their faith will continue, that they will die a faithful person, faithful people. That's what we believe about perseverance, that your faith will remain, God will keep it active and keep it alive throughout your life. Um, but, and there are, there are many things that God does to ensure that this will happen. Uh, there are many positive things that he gives us uh, to help us persevere. Uh, he gives us fellowship with one another. He gives us prayer. Uh, he gives us the word. He gives us preaching, the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. All these things are, are, are positive forces that God gives us that keep us in the faith. But God also does other things to keep us in the faith, and that is he puts obstacles in the way of our apostasy. Things that, that keep us from going down that path of apostasy. And one of those things is what would we say if we did apostatize? I think about apostasy quite often. I don't, I'm not consumed with it, but I think of what would happen if I did apostatize. And I think of all the things that I have to do, all the sort of barriers that God has put around me and how I'd have to break through them in order to go away from the Lord, to walk away from him. And one of the strongest ones is what would I say to the people of God? What would I say to my wife if I turned away? Could I look her in the eye and say, I have abandoned the faith. I no longer believe in Christ. I'm walking away. How could I do that? Or what would I say to Justin? What would I sit down with the elders? How could I look them in the eye and say, gentlemen, I'm abandoning the faith. Everything I believed was a lie. And I'm going back to the world. How could I do that? And the truth is, right now, I really couldn't do that. And so when I think about having to do that, it drives me back to faith. It makes me more uh, careful in what I do, more obedient, more loving, more kind, uh, more diligent in my prayer life, more diligent in, in reading and understanding the scriptures. It drives me to the Lord to cling to him all the more, to think that this is something that I may have to do if I fall away from the faith, and I don't want to do that. Asaph is going through the same thing here. If I really embrace this idea take a step away and say your efforts for godliness, for holiness are useless. They accomplish nothing. What would that do to the people of God? And it says when he thought about that, he couldn't speak about it. He couldn't tell them. So what does he do? Well, he says he ponders it in his own heart. Verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, I was, it was troublesome in my sight. So he didn't let it out. He kept it to himself and pondered it, and it, it caused him trouble. It, it caused him grief and despair. But if you look at verse 18, what do we see in 18? What's the first word there? Surely. Now we're going to switch over to that final part. We're going to see the resolution the solution to his problem. We've seen the problem. We've seen David struggle with that problem. Now we find the solution. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse, you will despise their form. So what David here is taking comfort in, the first thing that comforts him is what? The fact that these men are not safe, that God has put them on a slippery slope, that their uh, apparent uh, peace, their prosperity, their well-being, uh, their assurance, their confidence, it, it, it's not permanent. 
It will be destroyed one day. God will come and will judge them. So the first thing that brings David comfort is that he sees uh, this destruction that God is going to bring upon them. Now notice what brings this about. He says, until, in verse 17, I what? Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Uh, there, there's a, a step David takes here, and that is going into the sanctuary. Now, let me ask you children again, uh, what, what is the sanctuary of God? And you guys know? What are we talking about here? Now, I don't expect you to yell it out, but it, it means the temple. When I say that, just think about it in your mind. And then if I agree with you, then say, okay, in your heart. But uh, we're talking about the temple here. Now, what was it, why was the temple important? What did the temple, you know, can you kids again, think about what you know about the temple, what happened in the temple? What was in the temple that made the Old Testament Jewish person go there and want to go there? The temple was where God lived, right? That's where he dwelt. And so David, in a sense, went to visit God. When you want to visit your friends, uh, your friend lives across town, uh, what do you do? Well, you say, Mom, Dad, can we go visit so-and-so? You go to their house, right? That's where you visit them. That's where you spend time with them. David, or Asaph, is saying the same thing here. He's saying, I went into the house of God. I went to where God dwells. And what happened where God dwells? Well, there were other people there who were like him, who wanted to be there because they loved God. There were people there praying. He went there to pray. There were, there were symbols there uh, that reminded him of truths about God. There was the sanctuary. There were images there, all that reminded him of who God was. So he goes into God's presence, and that is where he realizes the error of his ways. That is where he sees, no, these people are going to be judged. Now, what triggered that in his mind? I don't know, but something about maybe it was a prayer, maybe it was a discussion, maybe one of those symbols appeared to him, but something convinced him that these people, their path is not well. Their destiny is not secure. All that they have, all that they embrace as a sign of God's approval will one day come crashing down upon them and there will be judgment. And now we often think, well, that, that's horrible. That, that's a bad thing. We should never take comfort in that. But that's the first thing David realizes that brings him comfort, that these people will be judged. And that's a comfort to David's heart. In verse 18, again, we have the third surely. We've mentioned that. Uh, the ESV, again, member has truly, not surely. But we see the resolution. Uh, the next phrase shows the example of God's faithfulness to Asaph. Or actually, go back to verse 21 and 22. Uh, he sort of describes here the experience that, that he has. He says, when my heart was embittered, I, I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. So he, Asaph here is describing uh, what his heart was like, what his life was like when he was in this state of, of envy and jealousy. And anybody who ever spent a moment being envious or jealous knows that it is one of the most miserable experiences you can have. An envious, a, a jealous person is not a person you want want to be with you. You ladies or you men, if you're looking at a, a potential spouse and, and there's jealousy or envy there, run away because they're going to be a miserable person. And Asaph expresses this. When I, when I was angry like this, uh, he says, my heart was embittered. I, I was pierced within. I, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. The idea of embittered here is a good summary. It's the idea of, of sour, something being sour to the mouth, a, a deeply unpleasant experience. So David looks back and, and he sees how restless he was, how sad, how sorrowful, how ignorant uh, and senseless he was. The next phrase shows the, the example of God's faithfulness to Asaph. Uh, it starts with the word nevertheless. We're looking at verse 23. I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. So now David, it's an idea of nevertheless here is a contrast. At one time, he was ignorant. Uh, he, he was a beast before God. But now there's a contrast. Now God is with him. Uh, God is continually with you. And I think the idea here is not just, just God is with him now, but when he was in this estate. 
When he was feeling this way, when he was in this bitterness, God was with him. God is continually with Asaph. Even in this embittered, angry, bitter state, God was with him. God was guiding him and God was leading him. He says, I have continually, you have continually been with me. You have taken hold of my right hand and with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me into glory. So what David or Asaph is doing here, he's extending his mind beyond what he sees in this world, beyond what these people have and beyond what he has. And he's looking into glory, into the future and seeing that God is going to take him to a place where there will be an infinite amount of glory and blessing that he'll share with the Lord forever. And notice the intimacy here. God is going to take hold of my hand and he's going to bring me into this place. There's a great confidence here. There's a great intimacy that God is going to hold his hand and lead him into this place of glory while the wicked, while the evil suffer the fate that God has for them, that God has destined them for. So Asaph describes what, what really happened in the temple. He, he really came to understand uh, in his contemplation of the wicked. It was not just their destruction, uh, but there was something more that brought him out of this spiritual funk or this depression. That's verse 25. It says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Take all of the pomp, all of the excesses, all of the apparent blessings and wealth that the wicked have and put it into one massive pile before me. And what is it compared to having you, God, near me? And it's not comparable. There's no comparison. Remember, Satan brought all the world before Christ in a way that none of us could ever imagine in temptation. All the, the kingdoms, all their power and all their glory. And, and what did Christ choose? He chose to obey his father. David is doing this, or Asaph is doing the same thing here. He's saying, I, I looked at all their wealth, all their pomp, all the blessings, all the stability that they appear to have, and when I compare it, Lord, to being with you, it, it's nothing. Who do I have in heaven but you? And there's a sense that this is all that I need. The wicked's portion and this is this life, but Asaph's portion is an eternal portion that will last for eternity. In 27 and 28, he closes here with a contrast. He says, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. The wicked here, he contrasts the fate of the wicked and the righteousness. Uh, there's destinies for each. The portion of the wicked will, will be destruction. It'll be perishing. Uh, they will be destroyed. Those who are unfaithful to you will be destroyed. But then for him, there will be blessing. The nearness of God is my good. Again, notice the difference between the two fates, destruction and nearness. Also notice now that, that David has changed his attitude towards goodness. He now he understands that God is good. It's not just some out there thing that, that is there that he's not receiving. He says, the nearness of God is my good. So what does he see as his good? Is it the, the peace and stability of the wicked? Is it their wealth? Is it their pomp? Is it all the things that they possess, the easy life that they have? Is that what David sees as good? No, he sees God not just God, but God being near to him. And that's how David, he's speaking here. It's not just morality that one's good, one's not. It's one is near to God and one is not. One is close to God, one is far away from him. Notice how he describes the wicked. For behold, those who are what? Far from you. They are far from you, but I am near. And that nearness is the blessing that God has for me. Says, I've made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Now David's ready. Remember we said David stopped in verse 2 and didn't continue on with the description of the works of God? Now David says, I see. I understand. I, I see the judgment of the wicked that God has upon them for their arrogance and for their pomp. Now I see that. 
but also I see his blessings to me. Now I'm ready to tell what those blessings are. No, he doesn't. He stops here. But at least his heart has changed. That struggle that he's having now has been resolved. And he's ready to go on and explain, uh, to rejoice in the works that God has done for him that he couldn't do in verse 2 because of this, this struggle, uh, this difficulty that he had. Now, some application. A couple points I want to point out here before we're dismissed and we're just out of time. First of all, uh, we should take comfort in, in God's judgment of the wicked. And I've said this a number of times, uh, we shouldn't shy away from taking comfort in that. We want to see justice done, right? We want to see uh, evil uh, be destroyed. Well, part of that destruction will be a destruction of the evil people themselves. So we should never shy away from that. Uh, Asaph didn't. Uh, he took comfort. In fact, that was the first thing that brought him comfort, was the thought of the wicked being judged, the fact that they are on a slippery place and God will judge them. Uh, we just have been through a couple years in Revelation. Remember, in Revelation, there's so many times where uh, the, the, the righteous, uh, the just, the holy ones, cry out for God's judgment upon the earth. They see what God is doing and, and cry out for God to judge. Sometimes God does. Sometimes he says, no, wait, it's coming, and then does. But the reaction is always the same. There is a rejoicing of the people of God when Christ comes and brings about his judgment and sets up his kingdom on the earth. Because if you want his kingdom to come, as we should all be praying, with that kingdom comes a judgment and destruction of this world so he can bring his kingdom in and put it there. So never shy away from the fact that God will judge the wicked. And never be afraid to remind the wicked that God will judge and that's part of the gospel. That if you are without Christ, if you are separate from him, you are still wicked and God is going to judge you. That's an essential part of the gospel and it's an essential part of our hope that God one day will do this. And, and secondly, part of Asaph's problem here was that you know, he just didn't wake up one day and probably realize, you know, these wicked people really have it well and become envious. This was probably a process that happened over days, weeks, even months, where he wandered away from the Lord, he forgot about God's goodness, he didn't remember the things God had done for him. You don't just wake up one day and forget that God is good. Usually there's impediments that you place there or things that you neglect that God wants you to do that when you get far enough away from God, then these things start to happen. It's one thing I'm, I'm so thankful for is that when I get away from God, when I go a distance from him, he always brings me back by doing one thing, and that is making me absolutely miserable. And I don't wake up that way. It's step by step by step until I realize, what am I doing? Why am I here? What have I done? What have I neglected? What have I stopped doing that I should be doing that's got me into this position? And that's where Asaph was. And it could have been a, a long, lengthy time period it took him to get there. But he got there and he realized, I need to go back. And he went back to where? The temple. He went back to God, into God's presence, and sought God there, and God blessed him. Now, it's much better if we just never do that. If we always stay close to God, always are near to him, drawing his grace, drawing upon his mercy and help instead of walking away. And, and finally, don't envy what the wicked have. Now, we can even envy what we each have. Uh, the, the single people can look at the married people and say, boy, I really want to be married and be envious. Uh, the married people can look at the single people and be envious that they want to be single again. Even amongst ourselves, uh, there, there's a great uh, amount of wealth in this church, distance of wealth. You know, it's easy for some of us to look at the wealthier people and say, no, I wish I had their house. You know, I'm living in a, a little apartment right now. I wish I, I had that house in a lake that, that so-and-so has. Or I wish I had the car that that person has. So even amongst ourselves, uh, there can be envy and jealousy and bitterness. And, and we, we know not to do that. But even worse, don't go to the wicked. And don't go to look what they have and take that as a sign of God's blessing and want that and be envious of them. Because as the psalmist says here, it's only temporary. It's going to pass away. And they're going to be judged. All their blessings that they have, think of them on a, uh, at the edge of a slope, a slippery slope. One, one wrong move, one uh, a rainstorm that sl uh, slippens that, makes that slope slippery, and they're gone. 
They're in a very precarious position where no matter what you have, you can have none of the riches in the world. You can have none of the, the blessings that the world looks at and says these are good. None of those. And, and you're far better off than they are because you are God's person. You are God's child. So never be envious of what the wicked have. But instead, we draw our delight, our hope, our joys from being near to God. Now, the nearness that we have, I believe, is far greater than any nearness David could ever imagine. David had to go to a temple, a physical building, to be near God. We have that, that same dwelling of God within our very own hearts. He dwells, the Spirit dwells within this church, making us a temple of God. So we, we gather together and we're there. We're with our wives and, and we're in that temple. We're praying by ourselves in our closet and we are in that very same temple. And what we see about God is far greater than what David saw. Who do we see? when we see God now. We see Christ. We don't see him in images on a wall in a temple. We don't see him in utensils or in pieces of gold or ornaments. We see him in the face and the person of Christ. Remember what Paul tells the Corinthians in, in uh, chapter 2 verses or 3 through 4. He says that in Christ you have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says that, I'm telling you this, so that people do not entice you and drag you away from the faith. Uh, there were people there in the church in, in Colossia who were speaking to these men, uh, telling them things that was to draw them away from their faith. Well, Asaph saw the same thing. There were things that he saw that drew him away from God. And Paul takes Christ and puts him in, there, in, in front of them and says, he, in him, we have all the treasures, everything you could ever desire, we have through the person of Christ. And understand this, and you will not be enticed away by the wiles of this world, by the wealth, by the riches of the wicked. That is where our hope lies. That is where our, our trust is. And if we are firm in that, God will never let us go away. God will, will keep us in the faith. He will cause us to persevere, and we will grow and be blessed, and never have to go through this envious, this pain, this grief that the psalmist went through. Stay close to God. Stay focused on the person of Christ. And we'll never have to experience this pain. Now, for those of you who don't know Christ, how do you know him? How can you, you have this treasure that Paul is describing, that we are describing, that, that Asaph described in, in a different way? How can you have it? Well, Christ is clear. You simply believe in him. Believe what he said. All who come to me, he says, I will no wise cast out. When he told the people in John 6 that do the works of God and you will have eternal life, there are certain works that you can do that will lead you to eternal life. And the people naturally said, well, what, what is this work? What is it that I must do to gain eternal life? What did Christ say? Believe in me and you will have eternal life. That is how you cling to Christ. That is how you come to him. That is how you receive the benefits that he offers to every man, every woman, every child who comes to him. Believe in him. Cast aside your own works, your own efforts. Come as you are. There's no need to reform. Come with your sins. He will take care of those sins. He will turn you away from them and turn you into a life, life of peace and a life of prosperity. Brethren, I hope you're encouraged by these words as much as I was in studying them and preparing them. I hope you'll be blessed by what we learned. Let's pray. Our Father, we are, again, humbled at your, your goodness, at your kindness to us. We are a, a, an evil people, Father. We still love you, but there is evil in our hearts. There are desires that we wish would go away, Father, but we know that you at times leave them in our bosom to give us a struggle, to give us a grace to fight, Father. And we, we pray you would keep all of us near to Christ. Never let us stray from your presence, Father. Always draw us back, even if, if it's with rods and discipline, even if it's with our, our, our own uh, unhappy hearts, Father. Let us always come back to you and, and seek your face and seek your nearness, Father. If we know that all who seek you, Father, you are a rewarder of those who seek you. So let us always be seeking to be closer to you, uh, to stay close to you, Father, and never wander in our faith, Father. We thank you for these things. We thank you for Christ and all that he did for us. And ask these things in his name. Amen.